Indeed, what a gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. All that we need is found in him, and because of him, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Beloved, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in his written word, for it is that written word that reveals to us the glory of our Savior, who alone saves and sanctifies us by His Spirit. So please turn with me now in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as we continue to worship our Savior by listening to His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. But before we look at the text, let's ask the Lord to give us understanding by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would now give us understanding according to Your Word. Help us put on the mind of Christ so that we would not think and act like the world. Give us loving hearts so that we might strive to build up one another in the faith and proclaim your gospel so that the nations would know that our Redeemer dwells in the midst of his people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Welcome. If you have lived in Sharjah for some years now, then uh, the sight of a column of smoke rising up from an industrial area probably won't surprise you anymore. Uh, you might have seen one rise up from industrial area number three last month. Buildings and warehouses catching on fire, unfortunately, have become a common occurrence in Sharjah. And even though fire incidents uh, have reduced by 75% in Sharjah, according to civil defense statistics, there were still 74 incidents reported last year. So fire is good and useful. We all know that. It's good and useful if it is contained, if it is regulated and channeled. But fire left unchecked can be disastrous. Now the desires of our heart are also like that. Our desires, if left unchecked or undefined, or left to function autonom autonomously can not only be devastating uh, to our own lives, but it can also wreak havoc in the church. For our desires to be God-glorifying, well, they need to be defined by Scripture and regulated by Scripture. Now, at the church in, in Corinth, desires had run amok. Certain members wanted to have certain spiritual gifts because of the value and importance that their culture placed on certain abilities. There were people who desired the gifts of knowledge and tongues, but for all the wrong reasons. And as a result of this, people became conceited. They had forgotten what those gifts were for. They, and more importantly, they had forgotten that they had only received those spiritual gifts because of the love that Jesus had shown them on the cross. They were uninformed. They were uninformed. And so Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be, what? 
uninformed. And so in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds them about the way of love. Christian love is defined by the cross. It's defined by the word of the cross. Because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, we now have communion with the triune God, and he pours out his love into our new hearts through the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. And this love enables us to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. All that the Spirit does in the midst of the church must be interpreted through the lens of the cross of Christ. And Paul tells us that God has given different members different kinds of spiritual gifts, grace gifts, for the sake of each other. Our gifts are the manifestation of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit makes himself known. They are the manifestation of the Spirit given for the common good for the building up of the congregation, for the body of Christ. This is the task of Christ-like love. Love builds up the church. And so what is Paul, and so what Paul does in this passage is that he takes two gifts, tongues and prophecy, those speaking gifts that the Corinthians were abusing. He mentions those in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 2. He takes those two gifts and he lovingly corrects the Corinthians. He teaches them how to rightly desire and use those gifts for the glory of God. So all of chapter 14 is about correcting the abuse of those gifts at Corinth. And in doing so, Paul's point is to once again reiterate that the true identity marker of a believer is not his or her gifts, but love. But love. This is the true mark of spiritual maturity, and this is how gifts can properly function under the Lordship of Christ. Now, if you remember, the tongue speakers in the church thought that they were the ones who were truly spiritual. After all, speaking in tongues was, was a prominent and miraculous gift. But Paul tells them that they should not chase after gifts based on their cultural understanding of what was greater, but to have their desires shaped by Christ-like love. If these members were driven by Christ-like love, if they were motivated by love, then they would not desire the gift that was most showy or spectacular, but the one that was most edifying, like prophecy. So don't chase after gifts. Don't seek after the, those manifestations of the Spirit for your own personal glory, says Paul. That's what the culture wants. That's what the culture wants you to do. But no, you desire them so that you can build up one another in love. That's what Jesus wants you to do. And so here's the first lesson as we look at this passage. Here's the first lesson we can learn in order to exercise our gifts to the glory of God. Let's remember, number one, that God gives us grace gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's simple enough, isn't it? God gives us grace gifts to build up the body of Christ. In a sense, we, we know that. We studied chapter 12. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, Paul ends chapter 13 by contrasting the eternal nature of love and the temporary nature of these sign gifts. Love is the greatest, not only because it is eternal, but because it is the goal of our faith and hope in Jesus. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's Galatians 5, 6. Friends, God the Holy Spirit empowers us to love as we behold the glory of Christ and Him crucified as revealed to us in the word of the gospel. Love is the excellent way in which we ought to exercise our gifts, which is why Paul says, pursue love, work at it. Work at it. Remember, he's addressing some very self-centered people and he's telling them, you need to work at this. It's work. Work hard at becoming more loving. Dwell on the glory of Christ's love and let those truths shape and form your desires. You see, when Paul says pursue love, he doesn't mean chase after some feeling. No, he means study revealed truths about Christ and Him crucified and nothing but Christ and Him crucified so that you are transformed and empowered by His Spirit to become more loving. Beloved, being loving doesn't come naturally to us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit says to older women in Titus 2 verse 4 to train younger women by teaching, that's how you train, by teaching to love their husbands and children. If it came naturally, why, why command? Why is that command there? Right? Christ-like love does not come naturally to sinners. The more we dwell on the riches of the gospel, the more we wrap our heads around the heights and the depths of Christ's love, the more loving we will become. And friends, that requires a rigorous and disciplined study of the scriptures. To some of you, that sounds counterintuitive. Like when you hear the words study and theology and knowledge, you immediately think, oh, it sounds so cerebral. Where's the feeling? Where's the emotion? Where's the love? Well, if you're thinking that, then you've already moved away from the cross to culture. Friends, the pursuit of Christian love involves the daily putting to death of our sinful desires by the Spirit of Christ. Desires that we know are sinful only when we allow scripture and theological study to define those desires for us. You see, we need God to tell us in his words which desires are praiseworthy and loving and which ones are wicked and selfish. It's only by dwelling deeply on the riches of Christ's revealed word can we be empowered to put to death what is selfish and serve others by His Spirit. And most of these times are not accompanied by warm, fuzzy feelings. If I waited around for wonderful feelings to trust and obey Jesus, I would never get around to loving my wife or my children or my congregation. If you knew the kind of week I just had, you would wonder, how, how did he get anything done? You know, sometimes our emotions and feelings are the very culprits that keep us from pursuing faithfulness and love. Brothers, we need to pray that God would enable us to overcome those sinful feelings. We need to pray that God would give us joyful emotions that accompany our obedience. Because God is sovereign over our feelings and our emotions, not us. We need to pray for that because Listen carefully, we need to pray for that because we're so used to having happy feelings only when we get what we want. That's what we're used to. Paul says pursue love. And what he means by that is pursue the way of love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 
If you consider the way of love and allow that to inform your desires, then you will desire to prophesy. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. Paul says if you pursue love, then you will desire prophecy over uninterpreted tongues. Uninterpreted tongues or untranslated tongues. That's another word for uninterpreted tongues. If you remember, the gift of tongues was the ability to communicate God's infallible revelation in a language that was unknown and previously unlearned by the speaker and sometimes foreign to those who heard it. To put it in a simpler way, it was the ability to speak God's word in a different language, which is why God gave another gift for that gift to be useful, the gift of interpretation or translation of tongues, where either the speaker himself, if he had the gift, or someone else in the congregation would be able to miraculously interpret what was spoken so that the church could understand and be edified by the word of God. And this is what we see happening at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts 2 verses 4 to 6. Acts 2 verses 4 to 6. This is what happens at Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. There was no need to interpret what was said what they were declaring were the words about the mighty works of God. There was no need to interpret or translate because they were understood. Peter saw this as a fulfillment of Joel 2.28. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just on a select few believers. This is what Moses in Numbers 11.29 looked forward to. Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. See, Peter understood it to be a fulfillment because these tongues were understood. And when tongues are interpreted or translated, when they are understood, what you're hearing is prophecy. What you're hearing is prophecy. Brothers, what happened at Pentecost was a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, verse 1, we are told that this was the time the whole earth had one language and the same words. But instead of being unified in their obedience to multiply and fill the earth with God's glory, fallen humanity decided, yeah, we've got other plans. We're going to make our na a name for ourselves. And so they sought their own glory. And so they built this humongous structure at, at Babel in an attempt to reach heaven itself. This was the height of human folly and pride. But it shows us how community and culture can be united in their rebellion against God. That's what it shows us. Moses tells us that God came down and judged them by confusing their language and dispersing them over the face of the earth. This was the beginning of multiple languages and many nations. Friends, the fact that human beings 
from different places cannot understand each other is not just a frustrating thing. Remember, it's, it is an act of divine judgment. We are in the position that we are in because something bad happened very long ago. You know, there's some people who don't get this. They say, oh, pastor, isn't it wonderful that we have so many different languages? And my answer to, to that is always, yeah, no. And these are well-intentioned people. They're, they're looking for a reason to praise God for his many splendid works, but they're wrong. It's awful that we have so many languages. It's a reminder of our pride, our sinful nature. It ought to be a matter of grief. Man, it makes church planning so hard. It makes Bible translations that work so hard. It reminds us of what went wrong in the beginning. God's judgment at Babel. But the prophets in the Old Testament look forward to the day when the confusion of Babel would be ended and people from every nation would unite, not, not in rebellion, but in worship of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And God accomplished this through the sending of His Son, Abraham's greater offspring. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in humility, took on human flesh and entered our sinful world. And he ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and nation by his death on the cross. He purchased a people for himself, not by an act that the world was impressed with, but through an instrument of shame and death. He paid the penalty for our rebellion that we might worship God once again in one accord. And he did this for all who would repent and believe in him. After three days, he rose from the dead and later ascended into heaven. After he finished his work of redemption, he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to apply the fullness of his work to his disciples. It was the dawning of a new age. And so it is at Pentecost we see a glorious and powerful reversal of what happened at Babel. We see an ind indication that the new age had been inaugurated by the Spirit. This is the beginning of the rolling back of the curse. Jesus has come. He said it is finished. He's already begun his work. One day he will bring it to completion. But that's not what Paul is addressing here in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14. That's not what he's addressing here. Here he's addressing an abuse of the gift of tongues. There were some who were so taken up with their gifts that they didn't care whether what was said was interpreted or not. Paul says, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. In other words, only God knows what he's saying. He utters or speaks mysteries in the spirit. When you look at that word throughout 1 Corinthians and in the New Testament, the word mysteries always refers to something that was previously unknown, but has now been revealed. In other words, this is spirit-inspired speech. There is real content here. This is not gibberish or babbling. This was a lexical language. It had nouns and verbs and clauses. If there was a lexicon or a dictionary, you could go look it up. It was not ecstatic speech. The Spirit of Christ reveals truths about Christ. This is what Jesus said the Spirit would do in John 16, 14. 
And so what that tells you is that speaking in uninterpreted tongues is not very Christ-like. Instead of revealing to us Christ-exalting truths, uninterpreted or untranslated tongues causes the confusion and division of Babel. That's what it does. Such an exercise works against the unifying work of Pentecost. And spiritual people should not want that, because that's not loving. But consider what prophesying does. Look at verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy is the gift by which God speaks authoritatively through his prophet. This is inspired speech. The gift of prophecy is a revelatory gift. Prophecy can be a foretelling or a foretelling. Paul says, unlike uninterpreted tongues, when someone prophesies, he speaks God's very words to people in a language that they know, to build them up or edify them, to encourage them, to strengthen their faith, to spur them towards obedience, to console them or comfort them. This is what God's authoritative word does. It builds people up. It causes them to grow spiritually. 1 Corinthians 8.1, love does what? Builds up. Notice how many times this phrase builds up appears. This phrase builds up or some form of it appears in this passage. Look at verse 3, upbuilding. Verse 4, build up. Verse 5, built up. Verse 12, building up. Verse 17, not being built up. You can kind of guess the point of the passage, can't you? See, when you pursue Christ-like love, you build up one another. You know, one author put it like this. He said, gifts are the hands through which love serves. The pursuit of love leads to the exercise of gifts that results in corporate edification or building up. Friends, this is the fundamental difference between uninterpreted tongues and prophecy. Look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Friends, this is a rebuke by way of contrast. Paul is not encouraging people to speak in uninterpreted tongues by saying the one who speaks in uninterpreted tongues builds himself up. Like that's a good thing. No, edification comes only with intelligibility. You cannot be edified by what you do not understand. This is a rebuke. In light of the context, the phrase builds up oneself is negative. Builds up the church is positive because that's what a spiritual gift is for. By definition, that's its purpose. It's a contrast between a self-centered act and a loving act. Paul is not opposed to the gift of tongues. He's not opposed to the gift of tongues, which is why he says in verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Again, this doesn't mean that everybody could. Paul has already told us that not everyone has this gift, 1 Corinthians 12.30. This is just Paul's way of affirming the goodness of this gift. This is his style. He does it in chapter 7, verse 7, where he says, I wish that all were single as I am. You remember that? Paul is saying, don't get me wrong about this wonderful gift. I wish you all had it. But I want you... Look at the text, even more to prophesy. Now, why is that, Paul? Well, here's why. Look at the text. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets 
so that the church may be built up. Prophecies don't need to be interpreted. They were spoken in a language that everyone at the church of Corinth understood. And so the exercise of this gift was the most loving thing to do. Notice what he says. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. And that tells you what he means by greater. It is greater because one builds up the church and one doesn't. Unless someone interprets that tongue, and if that happens, well, then it will build up the church too. You see, intelligibility and understanding are required for building up. Intelligibility and understanding are required for building up, which brings us to our second lesson. Here's the second lesson we can learn from this passage. Building up the body of Christ requires intelligible speech. It requires intelligible speech. You can't really strengthen someone's faith or comfort them in their trial or exhort them to obey the Lord if they don't understand what you're saying. I mean, that's just common sense. You cannot grow in your love for God if you can't understand Him. Brothers, God has condescended to speak to us in a human language and He has given us a book so that we can know Him and fellowship with Him and fellowship with one another. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 6 to 12. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? I mean, this is really what he's after, isn't it? The spiritual benefit of the body of Christ. This is what he lives for. This is what he wants the Corinthians to become. Loving servants of Christ who build up his church. Beloved, I wonder if you are like the Apostle Paul. When you come to the gathered assembly of the saints, do you come with that mindset? That motivation? Do you think, how can I benefit someone? How can I build up my brothers and sisters on the Lord's day? You know, that takes preparation and it's motivated by love. Paul says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, he means uninterpreted tongues. How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? You know, that word that is translated as bring you means speak to you. How will I benefit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Those words are arranged in a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary technique where two ideas are presented in a pattern. And so here, revelation corresponds to prophecy, knowledge to teaching. Revelation is given through prophecy. Knowledge is imparted through teaching. But the point is that benefit comes through comprehension. Prophecy and teaching are to be preferred because that is how believers grow in their faith. That is how they can be built up. I mean, what benefit is God's word to us unless we can understand it? But if we can understand it, then it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And this is why Bible translators work so hard. They travel to unreached places to meet with unreached peoples, learn their language, take years to translate the Bible into their language and put it into their hands. 
you know, this is why we train pastors who can teach and preach in different languages so that they can go plant churches among those peoples who can understand a particular language. It's all for the benefit of the body of Christ. Now the gifts of tongues and prophecy have ceased with the age of the apostles. If you want to hear more about that and why we think that is the case, go to our website and listen to last week's sermon on understanding cessationism. Cessationism is the theological position that the sign gifts, healing and miracles, and the revelatory gifts, tongues and prophecy, were unique to the apostolic age and ceased with the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament writings, that is, with the completion of the canon. The purpose of miracles was to attest God's messengers who delivered God's revelation. These were the apostles and prophets and evangelists. Prophecy and tongues were revelatory gifts and since the fullness of God's revelation has come to us in Christ, those gifts have ceased. The apostles and prophets themselves were gifts that were given in the foundational years of the New Covenant Church and those years have passed. The gift of apostles have ceased. Inscripturated prophecy certainly has ceased. We have, all, we have the all-sufficient scriptures that has been handed down to the saints so that we might be fully and thoroughly furnished for every good work. But if that's the case, well, how do we then apply these commands? How can we desire prophecy if prophecy has ceased? Well, friends, you apply it in the same way you apply any command that is given at any period in redemptive history through the lens of the cross, through the finished work of Christ, through the principle of love. See, the fullness of revelation has come to us in Christ and we have the completed scriptures. We have inscripturated prophecies that are sufficient. So desire to know scripture, to understand the scriptures, to pursue love and make it your aim to use inscripturated prophecies, that is the word of Christ, to build up the church. To exhort, to encourage, to comfort, to counsel. Brothers and sisters, God still continues to speak to his people today through his word. Through his word. And this is what we are to stand firmly on. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And look at verses 19 and 20. When Peter speaks of his experience of Jesus' transfiguration... He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't make the stuff up. But now you know, now you know, because of Christ, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Okay, how are they confirmed? Through the apostles' eyewitness testimony. They bear written witness that the messianic prophecies came true. And then he says this, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, just like David talks about the scriptures, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So we're not telling you myths and stories. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament scriptures 
and the New Testament apostolic prophetic word, including Peter's letter, which he obviously sees as scripture. And if you fast forward to chapter 3, he calls Paul's letters scriptures. These are what constitute what we need to pay attention to until the day dawns. That's just Peter's way of saying until the perfect comes. Hold on to scripture. Why would anyone want to look for light and guidance in a subjective impression when we have the more sure word of inscripturated prophecy? You see, the problem with uninterpreted tongues is that no one could understand what was being said. And so Paul gives us a few illustrations from everyday life to help us understand why the loving exercise of spiritual gifts requires intelligibility. Look at verse 7. Even if lifeless, lifeless instruments, so forget about people, let's talk about non-living things. Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So, quiz time. Which sound belongs to a piano? Boom boom or clink clunk? Right? Katrine's looking at me thinking, on which planet does a piano sound like that? Each musical instrument has a distinct sound that can be identified and appreciated. If the bugle, that's like a small trumpet, gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? A bugle has a distinct sound. It's loud. It's blown in a way that's supposed to be alarming. It's war is on the horizon. Get up, get ready. You know, a few years ago, there was an Indian politician who declared that he didn't like the sound that ambulances made. And so he wanted the ambulance to play bhajans instead. Bhajans are Hindu religious chants set to music. Like, what a dumb idea. Just imagine that. I mean, what would that accomplish? Right? The soft, soothing, chanting noise. I mean, who's going to move away when they hear that? No one would recognize that there was an ambulance coming. It would be of no benefit. That's the point. Look at verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. That's not building up anybody. You might be thrilled and excited, but you're just a windbag. Let's think about the nature of languages itself. Verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. That's just common sense, isn't it? If you speak in a tongue and I don't understand what you're saying, in the church, do you want to know how that makes me feel? In my own church, I feel like a foreigner. I feel like a stranger in my own family. That's the way I am being made to feel. Brothers, I hope you can see how uninterpreted tongues should not be spoken in the assembly because it's unloving. It does not unify. It does not build up the church because it is unintelligible. So what should you do as a Christian? Answer, look at verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Paul says, I know you want to see the Spirit at work. If that's what you want, then do this. Strive to excel in building up the church. You should want this, in other words. 
You should desire this. Every member, excel, abound, do much of this. Exercise your gifts to build up the church. That's what spiritual gifts are for. Beloved, spiritual gifts are not for self-aggrandizement. You don't exercise them because you want to feel good about yourself. The corporate worship gathering is not a place for you to express yourself however you want. You don't exercise your gifts so that you can have an exhilarating roller coaster experience, so that you can get an emotional high. No, you speak so that you can strengthen, encourage, comfort, exhort, counsel, reprove, teach. You exercise it for the sake of others, for the common good. So then what should a tongue speaker do? That brings us to our third lesson. The third point, building up the body of Christ requires us to address the mind with the truth of God's word. Building up the body of Christ requires us to address the mind with the truth of God's word. In order to be spiritually built up, friends, our minds need to be engaged. Our minds need to be engaged so that we can think Christianly. Right? Paul doesn't say, put on the feelings of Christ. Let's put on the mind of Christ. If we don't think Christianly, we won't behave Christianly. So think before you speak. Look at verse 13. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Paul tells the Corinthians, God can give you that gift because you're asking according to his will. Because this was something God was doing at that point in redemptive history. So ask him. His will for you is to edify his blood-bought saints. So ask the Lord for it, he says to the Corinthians. You need to understand what you're saying. Others need to understand what you're saying. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, again, uninterpreted tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying. I know I'm praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying in my prayer. This tells you that in Corinth, people were praying in tongues when the church was gathered. We know this because of chapter 11. Men and women were praying and prophesying. Verse 15, what am I to do? What's the solution for this dilemma? Answer, Pray for the gift of interpretation so that you can do this. Do what? I will pray in my spirit, with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Beloved, this tells us that in Corinth, people were also singing. They were singing in tongues. Imagine that. I mean, how wonderful would that be? They were singing in tongues and people were interpreting it. Amazing. This was happening when the church was gathered and Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, if tongues are spoken, if prayers are offered and songs are sung so that no one understands, even if those prayers and songs are offered to God himself, like the Psalms that David wrote, he says, if nobody can understand them, what's the point? They're not edifying. You know, if you look at 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness that's arranged like a, like a song, like a hymn. Now, I don't know how that came to be. Maybe somebody sang that in a tongue and someone wrote that down. But they were singing in tongues. 
But here, no one was translating it. And that was a problem for Paul. Paul says they're not edifying. They need to be interpreted so that they can be understood. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, meaning if you speak a word of thanksgiving in a tongue, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, non-member, say amen to your thanksgiving? How can anyone agree with what you're saying when he does not know what you're saying? You know, sometimes enthusiastic pastors would, they like to gather different churches, um, different language speaking churches and come together, let's have a time of prayer. And people will pray in their own language. And that never made sense to me. Like, I don't know what he's saying. Like, what is the point? Is the point of this just to celebrate the diversity of languages? I don't want to do that. If you're going to pray, we need to understand each other. There needs to be edification. There needs to be edification. Paul says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. There can be no edification, no spiritual growth in the life of someone without addressing the mind, and that requires understanding. Beloved, the Christian faith is a faith that seeks understanding. And Paul is deeply concerned when God's word goes forth in the congregation, he's deeply concerned that it has to be intelligible so that our minds may be engaged and ministered to. In the Bible, the mind and the heart are used interchangeably. And we see Paul's concern here that corporate worship is only meaningful when our minds are engaged and instructed so that we might rightly respond to God in worship. I mean, right from the beginning, from the time you come to Grace Church, we keep saying this. If you attended the, the, the membership weekender recently, you attended the session on worship, you might have, had, you might have heard the Pastor Sam uh, talking about the elements and the forms of worship. Forms need to be intelligible, right? They need to be orderly. They need to be edifying. We tell you this right from the moment you join the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul tells the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, whenever abuses are corrected, there's always a tendency to go to the other extreme, to dismiss or belittle the gift of tongues. And so Paul makes it clear that he was grateful for that gift at that time. Look at verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind, understandable words. I would rather exercise a gift that employs a language you would understand in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, on the face of it, it seems very clear what Paul's preference is and why he wants us, those who walk in love, to exercise gifts that would edify the body. But this too, unfortunately, gets misinterpreted. You know, some look at this verse and they take it to mean that because Paul says that he speaks in a tongue more than all of them, but in church, he would rather speak prophetically. So some take this to mean that Paul spoke in tongues privately, but in church. To read it like that is to miss the point of the passage. 
It's to miss the point of the passage on several fronts. I'll give you three reasons. One, the gift of tongues as a revelatory gift was not given for private use, but for public worship. The Holy Spirit says, for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. Right? There are some people who will say, tongues have ceased, but maybe on the mission field somewhere, you know, somebody might speak in tongues. If you redefine the purpose of tongues, yes. Don't do that. That's not what tongues are for. Otherwise, we don't need Bible translators. Two, the whole context speaks to the gathered church. Paul is correcting those who glorified in their tongue speaking to submit themselves to other people who had the gift of interpretation. Otherwise, that gift was quite useless, wasn't it? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, different kinds of gifts are given to members so that they would depend on each other. They would depend on each other. And if these tongue speakers did that, if they prayed for interpretation and submitted their words to the interpretation of others, the body would be hearing what? Prophecy. And the church would be built up. Here's the th third reason Paul is not contrasting private tongues with public tongues. No, instead, he's contrasting his experience of speaking in tongues with those who were abusing the gifts. His experience of speaking with tongues with those who were abusing the gifts. I can speak in tongues more than the whole lot of you. you know, just like he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than all the other apostles. Here's the contrast. When it comes to exercising this gift in the way that it is supposed to be exercised in church, that is. That's the contrast. I would choose interpreted tongues over prophecy. More than 10,000 words that no one can understand. Why? Because that is what this gift is for. For the building up of the body of Christ. See, the word that is translated as instruct is very important. It is a word from which we get the word catechize from. Catechizo means catechize. I would rather instruct, I would rather catechize. This is a description of systematic teaching and instruction. You see, the Corinthians were behaving like little children with their gifts. They were behaving selfishly and unlovingly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.1 that they were not behaving like spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They thought that being spiritual meant showing off their spiritual gifts. And Paul says being spiritual means to have the spirit of Christ, to submit to the lordship of Christ. To do that is to walk in Christ-like love and to strive to build up the body of Christ, the one for whom Christ died, his bride. That is why Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, that love does not seek its own. Or 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You know, if you think only of yourself, Paul says, you're a self-centered child. If you think of others, and you're deeply concerned about the spiritual well-being of others, that is a mark of maturity. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. Building up the body of Christ requires mature thinking that is grounded in the revealed word. Building up the body of Christ requires mature thinking that is grounded in the revealed word. And that means that you must stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
Children are self-centered. It's true. How many parents here can testify, my child is so selfless? No one, that's what I thought. Right? We know that. You know, that's what Paul means when he says, don't be like children in your thinking. You know, your gifts are not about you. Grow up. Be like children with respect to evil. So don't try and find strategies within the church to be selfish and devious. Be unlearned in those kind of things like a child. But in your thinking, be mature. Put on the mind of Christ. And friends, that requires you to give attention to the revealed word. And so Paul says, let me tell you, according to inscripturated prophecy, the Old Testament, in other words, scripture, let me tell you from God's revealed word why I think you're wrong about tongues. And why prophecy is better. Declaring God's authoritative, infallible word of God in the congregation in a way that it can be understood, that's better. Let me show you why from the scriptures. And so Paul goes to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 verse 11, it's that passage that Aji read for us. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written. Here the word law is a reference to the Old Testament in general. Paul says it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now when you look at Isaiah 28, God was speaking through Isaiah to the northern kingdom of Israel. And even though the Lord had warned them in plain, childlike, simple language, here a little, there a little, line upon line, line upon line, people refused to heed God's warning. And they continued in their unbelief, in their rebellion. In fact, they even started to mock Isaiah's words. They said, oh, this is all childish gibberish. And so God says, well, if gibberish is what you call my words, then gibberish is what you'll get. I will send the Assyrians to invade you and punish you. And when you hear the Assyrians speaking, you'll hear gibberish. You'll hear foreign tongues. It will sound gibberish to you. Then you will know that my judgment is upon you. And so Paul points the Corinthians to this prophetic word. And he says, this is what it's like when you speak in an untranslated tongue. Friends, remember what untranslated tongues were like to unbelieving Israel in Isaiah 28. And so he concludes in verse 22. Thus, therefore, in light of this instruction from inscripturated prophecy... Tongues are, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. That's how they function. It was a sign of judgment for Israel. Untranslated tongues were a sign of God's judgment for unbelieving Israel. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers. In the Greek text, the word sign is not there. Prophecy is, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. That's what you should desire. Think about other believers, but that's not all. Think about unbelievers. And this is interesting, because here we're given a glimpse into what corporate worship was like in Corinth. There were non-Christians in the assembly. Unbelievers were welcome to attend. Look at the text, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, untranslated, uninterpreted tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? 
They will think that there's no difference between the people who gather in pagan temples and indulge in ecstatic utterances. No difference between them and you Christians. I mean, how you exercise your gift and what gift you exercise not only impacts the church, but it also affects outsiders who hear you. Paul says the church is to be about the proclamation of God's word. His revelation. Whether that is translated tongues or prophecy or teaching. It is the word of Christ that builds up. It's the word of Christ that builds up. That's why we place such a heavy emphasis on preaching and teaching in this church. But tongues at least the way the Corinthians were practicing that gift, Paul says tongues fails the test. It fails the test. Verse 24, but if all prophesy, on the other hand, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Friends, this is the work of the Holy Spirit through the words of prophecy. This is how the work, this is how the work of the Spirit is described in John 16, verse 8. Jesus said, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the argument that Paul makes so that the Corinthians would desire to prophesy more than speaking in tongues. When God's word is proclaimed, when his spirit-inspired, infallible word is declared by his people, it will convict unbelievers of their sin. They will see who God truly is. They will worship him from the heart. They will be saved. They will declare that the triune God truly dwells in the midst of his saints because of this great work of conviction and conversion. As one author put it, in God's economy, an unintelligible message leads to judgment, but a simple and clear message leads to salvation. What a wonderful description of corporate evangelism. Just think about it. How the church preaches the gospel together. But how is prophecy for believers? You remember that? That's what he said, didn't he? He said prophecy is for believers. How is prophecy for believers? Well, number one, we know that it edifies. We already know that it builds up because we can understand it too. In this case, as he explains it, it encourages believers in our task of gospel proclamation. Right? When we proclaim the word and we see people come to faith, it encourages us. And it also assures us of God's presence. God is in our midst. He's working through his word. Beloved, this is why we want to make the gospel clear in our services. That's what we strive for always. Because we want non-Christians to walk in here and under hear and understand in simple terms how they can be saved from judgment. Isn't that how you first came to faith? When you first heard the gospel? Was it many splendored like the way you, you know it today, the richness of how you know it today? No, you understood it in simple terms. Right? We want non-Christians to understand the gospel in simple terms. We want them to know how they can be saved from judgment. We want them to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. And what we want to tell non-Christians as a church, as a fellowship of believers, 
what God's word says to you. So if you're not a Christian, God's word says to you that if you repent of your sins, and if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, whom we have been speaking of for so long, you will be saved. Repent of your sins and put your trust in him. Beloved, we want to build up the body of Christ. This is a labor of love. This is why we plan our services. So that the gospel is clear in our liturgy. This is why we have introductions to scripture readings. This is why we have introductions to songs. Because we want to address and instruct your minds. We want you to understand the context of the reading. We want you to understand the purpose of the songs we sing. We want you to discuss after the service is over why we sang that song, why we read that passage of scripture. We want your minds to be informed and instructed. Worship is and must be meaningful. We want inscripturated prophecy, the Bible, to be front and center of all that we do because we want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is why at the heart of our worship service and the element that takes up the most time is what? The sermon. The proclamation of God's word exposited and applied. That's no accident. We want this. Because we believe every word of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit who shows us Christ through his word. Beloved, be eager. Be eager for the manifestations of the Spirit. Pray for his working and strive to excel in building up the church. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help your weak children by the power of your spirit to understand your word. Lord, we are so grateful that you saved us, that we have your spirit, that we can understand spiritual things. We're so grateful that you've given us the mind of Christ. Lord, help us to put off that which is evil and to put on the mind of Christ. Help us think Christianly. Help us love one another. Help us exhort and counsel and instruct. Lord, may we all desire to know your word better so that we can serve one another in love. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.